0: Auto Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Seren. Welcome, friends. Wherever you are, my wish for you is that you are warm and safe and well-fed. And I'm honored that uh, you've invited me into your home, and I do not take this responsibility lightly. Have no no fear, truth-seekers. You are among friends, and uh, if you've listened to this program at all, you know we talk a lot about UFOs, uh, but usually when we speak of UFOs, we're talking about the stereotypical type of craft, the kind resembling a flying disc or flying saucer, which was first introduced consciousness by Kenneth Arnold beginning in the summer of 1947, but there are other types of identified flying objects that bear little or no resemblance to this type of craft, and to, we're hoping to delve into this mystery, with Micah Hanks, uh, the author of a brand-new book entitled The Ghost Rockets, Mystery Missiles and Phantom Projectiles in Our Skies. And uh, Tim in the uh, other studio is trying to reach Micah, uh, who is supposed to be waiting by the phone, and we're not... No, I'm getting the the uh, the head shaking and the thumbs down. We're not connecting with Micah. So uh, if we do, at some point in this hour connect with Micah, we will talk about ghost rockets. It's a fascinating, uh, a fascinating phenomena that we haven't talked about before in the program. Again, we're all familiar with the flying saucers, uh, but following the Second World War, there, there were reports of sort of a new aerial technology which began to surface that was in, uh, capable of incredible maneuverability and, and one that also managed to stump the, the brightest minds among the new world superpowers. And uh, these objects have, uh, again, historically been referred to as ghost rockets. But contrary to most conventional modern perspectives, this phenomenon has actually persisted throughout the decades, and it's not merely relegated to the period immediately after the war. However, Micah Hanks is not where he is supposed to be. Hopefully he'll join us later in the hour, until such time. I thought we could talk about something else, and we'll open up the phone lines on this note. This story came out a couple of weeks ago, and I've been saving it for just such an opportunity. Now, I'm guessing that most of the people that listen to this program are sort of like-minded. We're all like-minded. We believe in the possibility of conspiracies. But there are probably a number of you out there listening who do not, who are skeptics or perhaps debunkers. I want to get your take on this story because a number of studies have come out recently suggesting that it is the conspiracy theorists who are sane, and those who are debunkers are perhaps government dupes, crazy and hostile. The most recent study was published on July 8th by psychologists Michael J. Wood and Karen M. Douglas of the University of Kent in the UK. It was entitled, What About Building 7? A Social Psychological Study of Online Discussion of 9-11 Conspiracy Theories... The study compared conspiracist, uh, conspiracist uh, and conventionalist comments at news websites. The authors were surprised to discover that it is now more conventional to leave so-called conspiracist comments than conventionalist ones. Of the 2,174 comments collected, 1,459 were coded as a cons- as conspiracist, and 17 uh, sorry, 715 as Conventionalist. In other words, among people who comment on news articles, those who disbelieve government accounts of such events as 9-11 and the JFK assassination outnumber believers by more than two to one. That means it's the pro-conspiracy commentators who are expressing what is now the conventional wisdom, while the anti-conspiracy commenters are becoming a small beleaguered minority and perhaps because of their supposedly mainstream views no longer represent the majority, the anti-conspiracy commenters often displayed anger and hostility. The research showed that people who favored the official account of 9-11 were generally more hostile when trying to persuade their rivals. Fascinating. Additionally, it turned out that the anti-conspiracy people were not only hostile, but fanatically attached to their own conspiracy theories as well. According to them, their own theory of 9-11, a conspiracy theory holding that 19 Arabs, none of whom could fly planes with any proficiency, pulled off the crime of the century under the direction of a guy on dialysis in a cave in Afghanistan, was indisputably true. The so-called conspiracists, on the other hand, did not pretend to have a theory that completely explained the events of 9-11. For people who think 9-11 was a government conspiracy, the focus is not on promoting a specific rival theory, but in trying to debunk the official account. In short, this new study by Wood and Douglas suggests that the negative stereotype of the conspiracy theorist, as a hostile fanatic wedded to the truth of his own fringe theory, accurately describes the people who defend the official account of 9-11 and other conspiracies, not those who dispute it. Would love to get your take on this. Again, a new study suggesting that it's the conspiracy theorists out there who are sane, and those who are wedded to official accounts of certain historical events, are government dupes, crazy and hostile, flipping the whole thing on its head. Additionally, the study found that so-called conspiracists discuss historical context, such as viewing the JFK assassination as a precedent for 9-11, more than anti-conspiracists. It also found that the so-called conspiracists do not like to be called conspiracists or conspiracy theorists. Both of these findings are amplified in the new book, Conspiracy Theory in America, by political scientist Lance DeHaven-Smith, which was uh, published earlier this year by the University of Texas Press. Professor DeHaven-Smith explains why people don't like being called conspiracy theorists. The term was actually invented and put into wide circulation by the CIA to smear and defame people questioning the JFK assassination. That's actually a true story. The term conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist was created by the CIA to smear and defame people questioning the JFK assassination. So in other words, people who use the terms conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist as an insult are doing so as the result of a well-documented, undisputed, historically real conspiracy by the CIA to cover up the JFK assassination. That campaign, by the way, was completely illegal, and the CIA officers involved were criminals. Because, as you may be aware, the CIA is barred from all domestic activities. Yet, they routinely break the law to conduct domestic operations ranging from propaganda to assassinations. DeHaven-Smith also explains why those who doubt official explanations of high crimes are eager to discuss historical context he points out that a very large number of conspiracy claims have turned out to be true and that there appear to be strong relationships between many as yet unsolved state crimes against democracy. An obvious example is the link between the JFK and RFK assassinations, which both played or paved the way for presidencies that continue the Vietnam War. According to De Haven smith we should always discuss the Kennedy assassinations in the plural because the two killings appear to have been aspects of the same larger crime. Psychologist Lori Manuel of the University of Guelph agrees that the CIA-designed conspiracy theory label impedes cognitive function. Well, that's interesting. The conspiracy theory label impedes cognitive function. She points out in an article published in American Behavioral Scientist in 2010 that anti-conspiracy people are unable to think clearly about such apparent state crimes against democracy as 9-11 due to their inability to process information that conflicts with pre-existing belief. In the same issue of ABS, University of Buffalo professor Stephen Hoffman adds that anti-conspiracy people are typically prey to strong confirmation bias. Now, isn't that what we conspiracy theorists are always uh, um, always accused of doing? Falling prey to confirmation bias. But according to this study at the University of Buffalo, the anti-conspiracy people are, are, are typically falling prey to strong confirmation bias. That is, they seek out information that confirms their pre-existing beliefs while using irrational mechanisms such as the conspiracy theory label to avoid conflicting information. Isn't that true? How often have you been involved in some sort of a discussion with a skeptic or a debunker or an anti-conspiracy theorist, and they'll throw that label out there, to stifle or to bring the discussion to an end? Well, you're nothing but a conspiracy theorist. The extreme irrationality, of those who attack conspiracy theories, has already been exposed by communications professors Gina Husting and Martin Orr of Boise State University in a 2007 peer-reviewed article entitled Dangerous Machinery, Conspiracy Theorist as a Transpersonal Strategy of Exclusion. They wrote, If I call you a conspiracy theorist, it matters little whether you have actually claimed that a conspiracy exists or whether you have simply raised an issue that I would rather avoid. By labeling you, I strategically exclude you from the sphere where public speech debate and conflict occur. But now, thanks to the Internet, people who doubt official stories are no longer excluded from public conversation. And the CIA's 44-year-old campaign to stifle debate using the conspiracy theory smear is nearly worn out. In academic studies, as in comments on news articles, pro-conspiracy voices are now more numerous and more rational than anti-conspiracy ones. No wonder the anti-conspiracy people are sounding more and more like a bunch of hostile, hostile, paranoid cranks. There you go. Would love to get your feedback, your comments on this. Again, new studies, a number of them, which find that conspiracy theorists are the sane ones. And the skeptics and the debunkers are more likely to be government dupes, crazy and hostile. Tim, open up the phones. So we'll make the lines available to you as we await the arrival of Micah Hanks.
1: Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view
0: of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Seren. Welcome back. According to studies, those who subscribe to conspiracy theories are less married to their theories than those who accept conventional wisdom. One study showed that people who believe strongly in something are greatly offended when proven wrong, causing emotional stress that in some cases can threaten self-image. Pacific Standard Magazine reported on such a study. It said that because political beliefs are connected to deeply held values, information about politics can be very threatening to your self-image. So imagine coming across information that contradicts everything you've ever believed about the efficacy of... Well, in the United States, the, the example they gave is Medicare. So the magazine report said, if you're wrong about such an important policy, what else might you be wrong about? And if you're wrong about a bunch of things, you're obviously not as smart or as good or as worthwhile a person as you previously believed. These are painful thoughts. And so we evaluate information in ways that help us to avoid them. Scientific American reported that those who are insecure about their own intellect are less likely to be able to accept information that doesn't fit neatly into their worldview. The report made the case that people might actually prefer to hear intellectually light arguments for the simple reason that they can intellectualize and articulate them better than the one giving the weak argument, and this makes them feel smarter. Might this mean that the conspiracy theorists, held in such disdain by polite society, have an intellectual self-confidence and mental stability to deal with the possibility of being wrong? Would love to get your take on this. Are conspiracy theorists really the sane ones? Randall's in Toronto. Good morning, Randall.
2: Richard, it's Randall Montgomery.
0: How are you? Hey, Hey. Randall.
2: Yeah.
0: How are you, my friend?
2: I'm very good, and actually I'm elated to hear this news. Three research studies showing that we're not all nutcases, that maybe the people who think we're nutcases are the ones with the problems.
0: Well, uh, a number of uh, studies, as as you mentioned, uh, seem to be pointing that out, that uh, conspiracy theorists are sort of less married to their version of events than those who cling to the official version.
2: Well, I'll I'll give you an example. Uh, My views on 9-11 have changed over time as they received new information. Uh, Instead of thinking that it was something that was actually done by the U.S., now I think it was like Pearl Harbor where they knew it was coming, but they allowed it to happen for political reasons, i.e. to start a war so I, I'm willing to accept new information, but no matter what stage I was at, uh, when I talked to my friends, they all dismiss me as a conspiracy theorist.
0: well um like you my my uh, my uh, i don't know my processing of all of this information about nine eleven has changed as well. I went through a stage where I, I firmly believed in controlled demolition, and now not so much but and and uh, I've taken a lot of flack for that, in fact, but to me. You know, while we're talking about 9/11, the whole theory as to whether it was you know they let it happen or they made it happen—it was uh, some rogue element you know within the United States power structure that made or let it happen—it doesn't rise or fall on controlled demolition. Right. It doesn't matter about how the buildings were brought down. Right. Maybe it maybe it was a, a commercial airliner that flew into the north and, and another one into the south tower, uh, yeah. and they got lucky. Yeah. But that doesn't change. Doesn't change the argument that there's you know, so much evidence suggesting there was inside information.
2: Well, I think the main thing is is to keep an open mind and look at the information and and not just kind of have a closed mind and say, well, if you don't accept the the official government view, you're a nutcase.
0: I agree, and and for so long we've sort of sat there and we've taken it on the chin, haven't we? <laughs>
2: well, you know, I, I haven't. I'm an educated person, as you know. I wrote that book, Aliens and UFOs. I've got a PhD. I'm a lawyer. And I'm I'm new to the conspiracy thing. It's only been a couple of years that I've been into it, and it's been like a radical transformation for me. I remember a a fellow lawyer I shared an office with in Oshawa a few years ago. He was into this, and I thought he was nuts. (laughs) And then I kind of gradually got into it from listening to your show and writing my book. And uh, now when I try to discuss these things in, in a rational fashion with my friends who tend to be educated, you know, postgraduate degrees, whatever, they say oh you know you're a conspiracy theorist it just they try to shut down the conversation that way and it's very frustrating
0: we should point out uh, aliens and ufo's your book uh, people can go to the website richardsear.com and uh, they can um, click on the banner ad and that'll give you all the information you need uh, it's uh, available through the book locker now this is interesting you, not only are you a uh, you're a lawyer but you have a degree in psychology as well
2: well, that's why I'm so excited about what you said in the last 15 minutes. I'm actually glad that your, your guest speaker is late because as a social scientist, uh, that was my first career. I'm, I'm really great. Uh, just, it's just great to hear that um, social science is getting some, uh, some respect and uh, that you know, people are, are hopefully accepting this as valuable information.
0: Well, you, you, as you say, came late to the dance in terms of conspiracy theories by your own admission. What was it that, that turned it around for you?
2: I, it was no real revelation, Richard. It was just gradually looking. As a scientist, you're trained to look at the evidence, you know, and you keep looking at the evidence over years and years, and gradually it just gets to the point where you think, gee, you know, there really is something there.
0: Let's talk a little bit, while we have you on the line, uh, uh, Randall, uh, let's talk a little bit about aliens and UFOs. The, the, the subtitle is Physical, Psychic, or Social Reality. So, you, yeah. you, you, well,
2: I, just, I just spent the last week uh, revising it. I basically locked myself in my apartment and didn't go out for about five days, spent 13 hours a day updating it partly because of you because you publicized that ufo truth event that was happening in toronto with richard dolan and our, our former minister of defense yes uh, from the trudeau era and i thought well i've got no excuse not to go because it's right here in toronto and i went there and it was inspirational for me i got really uh, super motivated and so i went to my u.s apartment and. Uh, didn't leave, uh, didn't leave the apartment for five days updating it. And I, I read Richard Dolan's books, and, uh, you know, they're very, very uh, full of facts and very informative. So Paul Hellyer, of course. Uh, right. You know, this, this is an interesting point that I've been telling all my friends. The mainstream media portrayed Hellier as a nutcase. Uh, it, I read some, I've been reading mainstream media stuff about him for the last few years, and it talks about, oh, he thinks there's four types of aliens, and they just portray him as a nut. Well, when I heard him speak, he barely mentioned UFOs. He was extremely uh, articulate and educated and impressive, and he mainly talked about economics.
0: Yeah, well, people...
2: he mainly talked about economic solutions for our society, and there's a million unemployed youth in Canada, and and how in 1939 when the war started the economy turned around, and how the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada used to be part of the government; they're not now. I wished I had been able to record that. It was such a, a, a brilliant speech. It was only 15 or 20 minutes, and I thought, wow, this shows you how the mainstream media. Can, can prejudice people that, you know, when I went there, I thought, well, this, this guy is very old, and he's lost it, and he's turned into a nutcase, and then when I actually heard him speak, I was extremely impressed.
0: Well, uh, people forget, you know, he was one heart a beat away from being prime minister. He was deputy prime minister under Trudeau and, of course, longtime defense minister, Uh not necessarily the most popular defense minister. I think he made some uh, some decisions that were not correct, you know, dividing the armed forces into three separate uh mm-hmm. three separate sort of. You know, uh, uh divisions or what have you—Army, Navy, Air Force—sorry, uh, unifying them under uh, unifying, unifying them. it rather under under one sort of umbrella, taking well, away the identity
2: on, on the surface. You know, it doesn't sound like a stupid idea at all, really.
0: Well, I, I suppose you know we could argue back and forth about that. But um, um, anyway, it, it, it's—we'll have to have you on, and we'll do a we'll oh, we'll do a complete hour on on uh, on the books uh, on on the book UFO uh, uh, or aliens and UFOs. And I appreciate you calling in tonight, Randall.
2: Well, thanks, and uh, I put some hard copies at Patrick White's Bookstore, Conspiracy Culture, on Queen Street in Toronto, because so, uh, a friend of mine ordered one from Richmond Hill, and he had to pay $17.50 postage from the U.S., so I thought, well, that's no good, so I'll, I'll make it available to people in the GTA a lot cheaper.
0: All right, and I see the forward is written by Nick Pope, so we uh, uh, look forward to reading that.
2: Yes. Thanks,
0: Richard. Okay, Randall Montgomery, Aliens and UFOs. All right, uh, next up we have, is it Darlene from Toronto? Hey, Darlene. Darlene. Is Darlene there? Yes. Hi there, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good morning.
1: Good morning. I just have a question. Uh, You did something last week on... Eight bankers, and you said there were as many as 20?
0: Well, uh, there have been a number of suspicious uh, uh, banker deaths. Uh, I believe the mainstream media has reported on maybe four or five or six of them. Uh, But Gerald Salente recently wrote, and he said the number may be as high as 20 these are bankers that have died under very mysterious circumstances they've been some of them have been ruled suicides uh and these are largely bankers that are uh, involved in the foreign exchange uh, or the forex uh currency foreign exchange currency traders and have ties to j p morgan and all of a sudden they started jumping well, off buildings
1: from, from the last week i think i'm not sure there were two more so that might make it 10 but when they say that there's like from, from the time of your last show till today I think there were two more and um, I can't see anything on the 20 is there any uh, website that tells about all 20 and maybe shows more information more pictures on these people you know more about their backgrounds
0: well let me uh, let me um, they find just, the story they it was clearly
1: just show JP Morgan and that's all they show they don't show anything else about the um, personal backgrounds, and not all of them were necessarily in the financial sector. They just seemed to me to be extremely wealthy people. Uh,
0: Well, the ones that uh, that I the uh, the biographies of the the um, individuals that died that i read i believe most of them were in the financial but uh, financial end of things they were foreign exchange traders uh or they had some some immediate tie to uh, to jp morgan or some other you know um, a, major bank
1: vicious one was the one in uh, Colorado, and they thought maybe it was a homicide because of the in which the...
0: This was the individual that, that was found with a nail... Uh, yeah. Was killed by a nail gun or something. Yeah.
1: Yeah, they they suspect. And he wasn't necessarily with the, uh, as you said, the uh, financial sector. He, he had something to do with, was it more real estate, but not necessarily. That's why I thought maybe if they looked to wealthy people not necessarily in the banking is usually where most of the wealthy people are but they seem to all be wealthy people where do you find out about the original 20 though
0: well uh, I didn't see names on, the, on, on all 20 I saw biographies of about a half dozen but I believe it was Gerald Salente who was on the program last week who mentioned in an article that the number may be as high as 20 I'm not sure where he's getting that information but I'll, I'll, I'll find that story and I'll put it up on the Twitter Okay. At Richard Serrett. All right. Thank you. Appreciate your call tonight, Darlene. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye. All right. Uh, we can talk about just about anything uh, if you'd like, but I, I would like to get back to this interesting uh, a study, or it's actually a number of studies that have come op- out over the last couple of years and uh, some more recently, and that is that it's possible that the conspiracy theorists people like you, me maybe, people that listen to this program. We might be the sane ones. According to studies, those who subscribe to conspiracy theories are less married to their theories than those who accept conventional wisdom. One study showed that people who strongly believe in something are greatly offended when proven wrong, causing emotional stress that in some cases can threaten their self-image. And I've always said this, that one of the problems with Being confronted with information that challenges everything you know or think you know. It's a dangerous idea. It deconstructs your reality. It's like having the, a rug pulled out from under your, under your feet. And so what do we do? What happens? Our basic instinct of self preservation kicks in. And so we want to avoid that ugly truth, that reality. And that's what these studies are suggesting that this is the reason that people cling to the official version of events because they don't want to confront the possibility that everything they think they know about the world is wrong. Micah Hanks, uh, as I mentioned, is going to be here. Micah is a uh, author and researcher whose writing covers a range of subjects that include aviation history, technological trends, future science, altered states of consciousness, unexplained phenomena. He's the host of the Micah Hanks radio program along with a weekly podcast that features his research. He resides in Asheville, North Carolina. And uh, we are going to get Micah Hanks on the program in just a few moments. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740. Following the Second World War, reports of an unidentified new aerial technology began to surface that was capable of incredible maneuverability and one that first managed to stump the brightest minds among the New World superpowers. These objects have been historically referred to as ghost rockets. But contrary to most conventional modern perspectives, the phenomenon has persisted throughout the decades and is not merely relegated to the period immediately after the war. Does a source exist beyond these phantom rocket technologies today? And if so, what is it? Micah Hanks joins us to tell us more, the author of The Ghost Rockets. Hey, Micah, how are you?
3: Hey, Richard, how are you?
0: Not too bad, thank you, my friend. I'm glad we found you and finally connected.
3: Uh, well, I'll tell you, it's been an interesting night here in the Grailian bunker because uh, while the power's working... The phone lines are apparently off. Didn't realize this. The internet is off. Uh, I've never had anything quite like this happen before. Maybe somebody doesn't want me talking about this. Who
0: knows? That's what, what I was uh, wondering myself. Maybe we're not <laughs> supposed to be talking about uh, ghost rockets. Well, uh, as you mentioned in the book, we tend to believe that people started noticing these phantom projectiles and phantom missiles just after the second world war and a lot of these sightings came out of places like finland and sweden what's that all about first of all what do you mean by a ghost rocket we're not talking about the kenneth arnold flying saucer here are we
3: we're not talking about a kenneth arnold flying saucer you know the ghost rockets actually predate kenneth arnold's observation of what he initially described as being what he thought were maybe some sort of military aircraft of Washington State in 1947, he described the locomotion as being like a saucer skipping across the water because it was an erratic kind of a flight that they tended to exemplify, I guess, when he watched these things. He couldn't really put a, a finger on what exactly he was seeing. So those, of course, became the flying saucers, which really described the locomotion more than the actual shape of the craft. A year before that, In Sweden, and all over parts of Scandinavia, in truth, there were reports of these objects that, in in general terms, really resembled rockets. And so a lot of folks were really concerned about this, because what we knew was that the Germans had been developing rocket technologies throughout the Second World War, and, of course, some of the best rocket scientists later came to work, Huntsville, Alabama, for not just the Allies, of course, but also some went to work for Russia just as well. So when we start hearing reports after the war of rockets that no one can account for that are seen over the neutral countries of Scandinavia, people naturally got a little concerned about that. And these were historically, Richard, what we call the ghost rockets. And I use that term in this book because I think it effectively defines not just what began as the ghost rockets in 1946, but in ufological terms, we're also using a term that is familiar. To UFO researchers and who people who have continued to document this phenomenon, whether it be the reports of what are described as disks or saucers or what are described as these large triangles that we continue to see today, in the book I continue to observe throughout the years reports of rocket or missile-like UFOs that are seen decades following the 1940s encounters with those initial ghost rockets that actually predated in modern UFO terms the saucers that Kenneth Arnold reported.
0: Micah Hanks is uh, with us, the author of The Ghost Rockets, Mystery Missiles, and Phantom Projectiles in Our Skies. Is it a mistake, Micah, uh, to sort of lump the ghost rocket phenomena in with other sort of unidentified flying objects or the the UFO phenomena? Is it a mistake to sort of bunch them together?
3: Yeah, I I don't really know that it's a mistake. I think that the the important thing to remember about UFO is, you know, and this is so obvious that it seems elementary, and yet I think it's often overlooked – UFO simply means unidentified flying object. Edward Ruppelt, who was the first gentleman to actually oversee the Project Blue Book under the Air Force in the 1950s, I think beginning in around 1953, um, Ruppelt, of course, was the man who had coined that acronym. He didn't like flying saucer because flying saucer, in terms of the description of the object, didn't fit all UFO reports, and so he wanted a more general term, something that was a little more ambiguous. Unidentified flying object simply means that there's an object seen, that is unidentified, and it appears to be flying. Now, the ghost rockets, again, even the modern reports of objects that appear to be missile or torpedo or sometimes described as being rugby ball shaped, these objects are indeed UFOs in the proper usage of that term. And I don't think it's wrong to call them UFOs or to consider them alongside of the UFO reports, but what I have found, and a lot of people ask this, they say, well, look, you've got to think that there's something. You can't be so unbiased about this, that you won't make a definitive statement, what are these ghost rockets? I'd liken them to something in modern terms. I would say that they're a lot like drones that we hear about, but they've apparently existed for decades and decades, and while they are indeed UFOs by definition, they may not be quite like the UFOs that we're used to hearing about, the flying saucers, and the triangles and the like.
0: Well, yes, these have, by all accounts, uh, you know, uh, smoke trails, uh, you know, coming uh, after uh, the initial sighting, uh, these smoke uh, trails blazing across the sky. S- seeing that they, the, the, the sightings, many of them came shortly after the war, What's did it distinguish them from, let's say, a, a, a V-1 or a V-2 rocket, which the United States went on to develop after the Germans, uh, you know, based on uh, recovered German technology? Why couldn't these things simply have been V-1 or V-2 rockets?
3: Well, see, I think that in some instances we have to look at that. We have to take that into consideration. It seems likely that immediately following the war and immediately following the capture of German rockets, not just technologies, but also some of the scientists who were behind that technology, it seems likely that these rocket technologies were being perfected and being tested. And Sure, there may not have been an official explanation given for who or why they would have been tested, but it seems only logical to assume that there was probably a human component behind that, and it had to do with captured technology. But, by the same token, when we look at some of the more intriguing rocket reports, and especially those that that follow the ghost rockets of the 1940s, you know, there are a lot of reports of these objects that don't leave vapor trails or or jet trails, and a lot of these things are doing really strange things like, you know, making an abrupt 90-degree turn in in midair, which is a little more in keeping with the kind of exotic technology described in some of the UFO literature, and so I can't help but look at this and wonder... Well, again, as other researchers have commented on this, Jerome Clark and a lot of great 14 and UFO writers of the years, we're looking at something that at once resembles technology that we know to possess and that we know to exist, and at the same time behaves entirely unlike anything that we've ever seen. And that is indeed a bit of a conundrum, and that's the only thing that I can think that should be mentioned in relation to these ghost rocket technologies, is that while they appear very much like something that we can account for, and I'm, again, more of the mind that these are indeed a terrestrial technology in most circumstances. They nonetheless bear a lot of traits in terms of their, their, their behavior and their erratic flight path and the like that, that are a little less easy to account for in terms of technology that we either know to exist or would expect to exist even on the clandestine level.
0: All right, Micah Hank stays with us. The Ghost Rockets, and we'll discuss further when the Conspiracy Show continues right after this. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back. Micah Hanks is with us. The ghost rockets, mystery missiles, phantom projectiles in our skies. There seems to be an aquatic connection here where many of these projectiles or missiles are seen sort of falling out of the sky and invariably into a large body of water. Tell me about that.
3: Ivan Sanderson. The 14 researcher. He was best known because of his uh, background in zoology as a cryptozoologist, a person who studied alleged reports of creatures like Bigfoot, things like that. He also took a very serious interest in ufology. And he had noted the fact that in many of the 1946 Swedish ghost rocket accounts, rather conveniently, these objects appeared to have fallen into lakes. And I say conveniently because, well, let's look at it from one of, a couple of different perspectives. One, If we're a serious researcher and we're trying to uh, understand if there is indeed a technological a physical technological component to all this, and these objects fall into lakes, explode, disappear, and we can never recover any shrapnel, that makes it very difficult for us to account for it in physical logistical terms. Uh, By the same token, if this is a phenomenon that is trying to conceal itself or operate or whoever's controlling it is trying to conceal it, they are able to possibly do so uh, with greater ease by steering these objects, if we want to consider them to be some sort of a remotely controlled drone or anything along those lines, into locations like large lakes where they're less likely to be able to be recovered with ease. And so I think that with the early ghost rocket reports, yeah, there were a lot of instances where these things were allegedly seen streaking across the sky and then they land into a lake or they explode into a lake and subsequent investigation turned up no results. And this is the very reason why, and this is very important, that despite the fact that the Swedish government put together a panel of experts to officially investigate the Ghost Rockets and their origins, there was no scientific determination made as to what they were, where they were from, who might be operating them. They couldn't account for it scientifically and therefore they had to just chalk the entire thing up to war nerves. This was important because, of course, what we see here is before there was a term applied to this, like UFO or flying saucer. Here we had the Swedish government investigating this phenomenon, and in other words, we had the first official U.S. or it was the U.S. government, but it was a, a, a UFO group that was maintained by government that was investigating unexplained aerial phenomena, and they came to the same determination essentially that what we saw later in. You know, subsequent years, including the, the RAND Corporation and the uh, University of Colorado UFO Project, uh, i.e., the Condon Report, they all came to similar determinations that we didn't have enough hard proof to back up that there was an actual phenomenon. That didn't mean necessarily that there wasn't a phenomenon, but there was this element to it that seemed to escape us. And if indeed these craft, whatever they were, were physical, their disappearance into locations like lakes made it a lot more difficult for people to be able to gather hard physical evidence to substantiate what they were hoping to try and study.
0: Well, even with the UFO with a flying saucer phenomena, we have, you know, reports of debris fields, of course, Roswell being the most famous of those. There have been those who claim that they have recovered bits and pieces, uh, strange materials, the memory metal that. You can crumple it up into a ball and it reforms and so forth. Are there any such claims when it comes to these phantom rockets or ghost rockets th- that people believe that they have actual physical material recovered from a crash?
3: You know, it's, it's difficult to say because I think that in, in basic terms, when it comes to recovery of any kind of physical evidence of a crash like this, uh, again, when we look historically at the ghost rocket reports, Uh, that was the initial problem that that the researchers faced, is that they did not have physical evidence. And it's as important to point out in, in in the broader terms of UFO research in general, because when we look at UFOs and the idea of UFO research, we're often faced with the potential for there to be some sort of a technology and something, again, that appears to be extremely exotic in its operation, and yet it also appears to be something that we can't put a finger on. We don't have... At very least in terms of what we know to exist on a conventional level, an actual UFO that's been recovered from a crash. Now, a lot of people will hear me say that, Richard, and say, oh my gosh, what are you talking about? Whatever happened at Roswell? You know, what are they keeping over there right at Patterson Air Force Base? You know, what are the bodies that are being kept on ice? And it's not entirely in the spirit of denouncing or, or you know, excluding from the conversation those reports that I say that we don't have hard evidence, but I think that we have to, in terms of looking critically at what we know to exist and what we can truly account for fully, we don't have a lot of really good, really good factual historical data that seems to back up the idea that there are, you know, crash retrievals and things like that that our government are working with. That could be the possibility, and you know, on a program like a conspiracy show, we have to examine that conspiratorial angle as a possibility. But history does not tell us that that is precisely what has happened we don't have scientific evidence that seems to back that up we have individuals like john alexander who've come and gone over the years and who maintain today that well you know having worked in government i can tell you resolutely i've tried and tried with the advanced physics project to uh... to try and garner attention from intelligence agencies that might be interested in looking at ufo's and try and get them to take this subject seriously and they simply won't the government doesn't seem to be very interested in ufo's at all if, if this is the case, if we begin to put this narrative together over time and we begin to look at it and take it for what it seems to be, it seems to be that we are dealing with what I think truly is a phenomenon, but that we have very little hard evidence to support. And that presents a real problem because continually people say, why does the science ignore this? Why do they disclude this? Well, I think quite simply, they want something that they can touch and turn in their hands and look at it under a microscope, and we haven't gotten that yet. Whether or not there is something out there that exists along those lines, your guess may be as good as mine, but as far as you and I know and can account for, it doesn't exist. That's the official explanation, and therefore I think that's created a, not only a lot of problems, but a lot of contentious debate in this field for years and years.
0: As with the UFO phenomena, there seems to be a lot of sightings of these ghost rockets on the part of commercial airline pilots
3: you know the most recent that comes to mind is actually a case that uh, was reported over a belief the UK just last summer and again i would mentioned earlier during the interview uh, a report of a what was described as a flying rugby ball (laughs) essentially kind of a football shaped object that was seen moving dangerously close to a commercial aircraft in flight now um, this is not unique case as far as my own research has shown. I think that, uh, you know, the British uh, news sources, I think the Guardian and the Telegraph had all talked about this, and of course as more information came out, the altitude at which the aircraft in question, the commercial airliner, had encountered this alleged flying rugby ball, also described as a cigar-shaped or torpedo-shaped object, you know, this didn't seem to be something that uh, they could account for in terms of a natural phenomenon. It didn't appear to be a drone. The, the pilot that witnessed it said that this object, whatever it was, was appearing to travel so quickly and so directly toward them that he was bracing himself for a collision when he first spotted it, and that this thing must have literally missed his aircraft by just a few feet. Uh, this, again, is not something that you hear reported very frequently in mainstream news sources like this case had been. And, you know, for people who would like to to read more about that, at my website, MikeHanks.com, I've actually got a couple of articles that talk about that, um, along with some images and things like that. But, you know, in in my research for the Ghost Rockets book, this is actually quite a common scenario. Where we find the data that backs up this this emerging narrative and the similarity between these reports is what's interesting. There is a website uh, that is actually a database that is maintained by NASA it's called the Aviation Safety Reporting System. The Aviation Safety Reporting Program that it falls under, I think, was formalized in around maybe the late 1980s, and they began collecting data anonymously from people who were essentially reporting flight traffic dangers—you uh, know, things that would essentially present extreme danger for commercial pilots or for you know aviation professionals in other areas of of aviation. For instance, let's say if there's ice on a runway or there's a mechanical failure or something like that, you know, in a hangar, all these kinds of things would be reported anonymously so that it could remove the fear of repercussions from litigation and things like that from those doing the reporting. Um, So the majority of the kinds of things that you're going to find in something like the aviation uh, safety reporting um, database is going to be having to do with those kinds of professional hazards and those kinds of concerns. But there are a, minor- a minority of reports that I've managed to find, along with the help of a couple of other dedicated researchers, that document similar reports to the flying rugby ball from last year that the uh, British pilot had observed, and they're remarkably similar. It tends to involve, in most instances, a commercial aircraft pilot or the crew aboard that uh Uh, You know, sometimes it's the uh, co-pilot, sometimes several individuals, sometimes only one. The individuals aboard these aircraft will see something moving toward the plane or moving nearby or moving close to the plane or adjacent to it. Almost always it's described as being torpedo or missile or rocket-shaped. Less often is there a report of a contrail or a jet trail being produced by the object. Whatever it is, it moves through the air, it moves very quickly, many instances, these objects come very close to colliding with the commercial aircraft or whatever aircraft in question. And so it's kind of unsettling because, again, what we appear to be dealing with is some sort of a technology that, to the best that I could discern, behaves a lot like a drone or like a missile technology. They can't seem to account for these. Uh, in at least a few instances, these aircraft appear to be corroborated with radar data, and yet if they were drones has been pointed out to me by listeners of my podcasts and people who read my books, drones typically operate via certain channels, as it were, and you know, typically you should be able to account for where you would assume that a drone is going to be or where a drone should be operating. Now, I'm sure that there are secret operations and things that may take place from time to time in which circumstances, we wouldn't be so easily able to access that kind of information. But when we're talking about civilian pilots flying commercial airliners over, for instance, the continental United States, I I have to wonder what kind of a secret operation at that kind of altitude would involve a drone aircraft that nearly collides with a commercial airliner that can't be accounted for. You know, that's a very strange set of circumstances. And these things don't in a lot of instances, seem to resemble known drones like the Navy's XF-7B or the Predator drones that we hear about in the news so often. So we have to examine a couple of possibilities, Richard. We have to look at either a kind of drone technology that is behaving very differently and looks very differently from what we know to exist, or we have to take into consideration something else that we can not account for in terms of our general knowledge base. But whatever it is, the Ghost Rocket's, problem, as I uh, you know called them, the ghost rockets, using that ufological term, it seems to present something that we can't fully account for with history and with science. I don't think that it's beyond the possibility that these things could be man-made. It's just we don't know exactly what they are. They're much like drones.
0: Well, uh, regrettably, we've only got about a minute here, and uh, we got you on a little later than we expected, so we'll have to have you back on, because there is a chapter in there Regarding TWA Flight 800, of course, which crashed off the coast of of Long Island back in 1996, I think it was, and there were something like 230 people on board who were killed. The National Transportation Safety Board discussed uh, whether there might have been a criminal act, and basically they said that it was an explosion of uh, vapors in the fuel tank. But, of course, there were all those eyewitness accounts, people seeing what looked like a rocket being fired up at the plane, which led some to speculate that maybe it was a missile strike from a terrorist or a U.S. Navy vessel that caused the crash, but it could have been a phantom rocket.
3: That's a possibility. You know, there's probably a whole program that could be done about that alone, and I'll just leave you with a teaser for that. In the book, rather than looking at that instance unto itself, I document no less than three other instances in the weeks and months before and even after the TWA Flight 800 crash that seemed to document the presence of missiles or rockets flying over Long Island Sound, that are as yet unexplained. And uh, if we look at that in the co- greater context of people reporting an object streaking up in the sky toward that aircraft, I don't want to come on and say, hey, look, yeah, a missile took down TWA Flight 800. I think other people have tried to present a very strong case for that, and I've seen some compelling evidence myself. In my book, The Ghost Rockets, the chapter on that looks at other instances where objects were seen and I think that there's some <laughs> something, clearly, that was going on around that time that needs to be looked into a little bit more carefully.
0: Micah, we'll uh, we'll get you back on, and we'll give this the time that it deserves. The ghost rockets, mystery missiles, and phantom projectiles in our skies. Appreciate your time.
3: Thank you, Richard.
0: Micah Hanks. All right, back next week, Rosemary Allen-Guyley will join us with another paranormal investigation. Tim Spreen, thanks for production. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.